World War II. So C.S. Lewis, who is a you know, famous Christian, English author, apologetics guy, World War II, uh, he was asked a weird question. Somebody asked him, C.S., if the Germans got a hold of an atom bomb and they dropped it on England and you looked up and you saw the bomb falling on top of you. Again, it's just a really bizarre thing to think about. I don't know. Anyway, I guess he had to be there. Um, but he was asked, what would you think in that moment? And this, is, this was his response, apparently. He said, I would look up at the bomb stick out my tongue at it and say, Pooh, you're only a bomb and I'm an immortal soul. Wow, okay. I don't know if that's what I would say if I saw an atom bomb falling on me, but I love that quote because it's, it's, a, it's representative of a worldview that's shaped by eternity, by an eternal view of things and not just by a this-is-all-we-have type of view. And as we look at our parable for this morning, which is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus found in uh, Luke chapter 16, we're going to see that, that Jesus wants us to focus on some, some really controversial subjects. And uh, he does this because he wants our focus on eternity, not just on the things that we can see in front of us, not just on this life and not just on ourselves, but on how there is a sense in which we are definitely, as C.S. Lewis put it, we are immortal souls, and we will spend eternity somewhere. So as we uh, dive into this parable, let's go ahead and look at the first part of it in Luke uh, 16, just verses 19 through 21. It says, Jesus tells the story, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So we start off, Jesus gives us a really stark contrast between these two characters. The rich man, uh, he wore purple. And if you know anything about that time period, to wear purple meant essentially either royalty or very wealthy because purple was very hard to come by. You had to extract this purple dye from some shellfish, and that took a long, long time. And so anybody who had purple clothing, you were able to pay whatever you wanted for your clothes. And he was so wealthy, he even had fancy underwear. That's the, the fine linen. He had fancy is probably made from something like an Egyptian flax. Really, really expensive. The text here in the NIV says that he lived in luxury every day, but the Greek lends us to think it's more like he lived in dazzling splendor every day. Dazzling splendor. He was... I, uh, I, I love this picture from um, the movie Batman Begins where uh, Bruce Wayne is... Alfred tells him, you got to go live the, the high life, man. you got to go live the life of a billionaire. So he goes, and he's got a Lamborghini. He's got, his, he's got two Russian bikini models, and he goes into a hotel, and he whips out his checkbook, and he says, I'm buying this hotel. I mean, that's, can you get any more dazzling splendor than that? That's, that's the kind of life this rich man enjoyed. He was probably a guest star on MTV's Cribs at some point, and just absolutely loved it. That's what we're meant to understand, is that this guy wasn't just rich, he flaunted 
his wealth wherever he went. He wanted everyone to know how rich he was. And then we get Lazarus, who is probably not the Lazarus from John chapter 11, the one that Jesus raises from the dead. Instead, what we're probably meant to understand here is that um, Jesus is saying this is a guy who absolutely needed help in every way because that's what the name Lazarus means. It comes from the Hebrew Eleazar, which means God has helped. So this man is totally dependent on God. He's not, it says that someone else carried him to this rich man's gate. He couldn't get there himself. He's covered with sores. When I was a youth pastor, we used, to, we used to go on these mission trips to Jamaica, and we'd always go to a nursing home. And in this nursing home, I remember one time, I'm walking down this long corridor. There's just this hallway with beds, and everybody's just there in the hallway together. And I, I turned to one bed, and in it was a man who had these sores all over his face. And, and I don't know if he had been burned badly or what it was that had happened to him, but I remember looking at him, and then I just turned away. I couldn't look. I mean, I, and I feel ashamed. I felt ashamed in that moment, but I could not look at him. And that's what I, th- I think of when I think of Lazarus here, that he was just absolutely uh, sickly and unwanted and begging for table scraps, as it says, and the only living beings that gave him any attention at all were dogs who would come and lick his sores. So we, we've got two very opposite ends of a spectrum here. Someone who absolutely lives it up and someone who has no hope. So what can we take from this? Well, I think that Jesus wants us to gauge our hearts and and see, are we living for this life and all that we have here and that's it? Or are we focused on eternity? You see, in this life, we have, especially where we live, we have so much. We have so many blessings, so much abundance. And we also live in a world that really does kind of only believe in the things that we can sense. Things that we can see and touch and taste and smell and hear. And that's it. And there's, you know, for so many people, there's nothing else. It's just this life and that's it. And so it becomes this kind of... This you only live once, this YOLO type of life where, you know, for most people it's like, we got to get everything in right now because this is all we got. We got to carpe diem. We got to, as, uh, what's it, Keating in Dead Poets Society says, we got to suck the marrow out of life, right? And this is the way people live. Life's too short. And so the other side of this is that if that's true, then yeah, life's too short for me to help somebody else. Life's too short for me to spend a day noticing poor Lazarus here at my gate and, and actually doing something for him. Because if I spend that day doing that, they, you know, that's a day I can't ever get back. I've missed out on something else. Why would I spend my resources making me uncomfortable if this is all I've got? Now, most of us would never say that that's our belief system. We would flat out deny that. But... Here's where it's hard is what do our credit card bills say? What do our calendars say? Do we feel the constant pull to not only have but to upgrade? Not only to have a possession but to have the nicest possession or to have multiple of that possession. Do we feel the need for, for our calendars to, con- to constantly squeeze more and more into them because we want to have more and more life experiences because honestly we're just kind of afraid 
that if we don't get it now, we're never going to get it. What does that reveal about our hearts? And I think this is where Jesus is pointing us, and he says this elsewhere, Matthew 6.21, he says, Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, so I think this is why God is, is consistently telling us in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament, to give. This is the reason for the tithe, the, the giving of 10% of our income to the church. Is it, is it hard to tithe? Absolutely it's hard to tithe. I mean, there's so much that we could potentially have to give up if we're giving 10% of our income. We may have to give up a vacation. We, we could potentially have to give up a, you know, re, a remodel on our home. Uh, we may miss out on something, but I want to encourage us to think of it this way. If eternity is real, if God is really going to set all the wrongs right in eternity, and if God is really going to make all things new in eternity, then we shouldn't have to live as though we're going to miss out on anything in this life. What are we going to miss out on that we can't get a millionfold in the new heavens and new earth? We will get it all. We'll have the kingdom of God. And so we actually don't have to hold on to things so tightly in this life, knowing that in the next life, we will be with Jesus. We will have everything that he has. So we can live, we can serve, we can give with eternity in view, and that means that we can be free from worshiping the gifts God gives us. We don't have to look at our, our treasures, the, the gifts God has given us, we don't have to think of them as something that we'll never get to experience again. So again, this is why I think God kind of builds these practices, these sort of spiritual disciplines, if you will, into our lives through, through the scriptures, like, like tithing. It's to remind us that God is the one who provides our wealth with, with Sabbath or, or the Lord's Day or however you want to look at that. It's we're supposed to remember that God is the master of our time. God is the master of our work. Something like church membership teaches us that we're to depend on God for our community, for our authority. And so many people wrongly view these things. Like we view things like tithing, Sabbath, church membership as things we have to do. Like we've we got to do these things so we can be good religious people. Or go the other end and we, we think, oh, we don't have to do any of that. I mean, there's grace, 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 which is true. There is grace. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to do anything. So to see it either one of those two ways is, is missing out on the reality that these things are built into our lives to show us that God is good to us and that our lives are meant to be focused on eternity. That these things, tithing, Sabbath, church membership, things like that are meant to loosen the hold that temporary things have on our hearts. They're meant to free us and help set our eyes on eternity. So yeah, again, think of tithing. Let's get real. Yes, the church depends heavily on the giving of its people. There, there is no money coming down to us from any kind of denomination. In fact, we have to cut a check to our denomination or else they don't survive. That's the way this works in, in the Presbyterian church. And yes, if everyone tithed consistently, 
the, the amount of ministry and the amount of staff and the amount of building and everything that we would be able to do in this community would triple if everyone tithed consistently. But don't miss this. This is not a guilt trip. The reality is, is that God does not need your money. Number one, he already owns it. It's already his. And number two, God will do what he's going to do whether we tithe or not. I mean, he is the king of the universe. And so tithing is really more about a way that we get to be set free from money owning us. We need God to be our treasure, and the best way for us to consistently show that God is our treasure is for us to let God be in control of our treasure. So the Bible is very clear that this life is not all there is, that this life is not even really the main point. And that's what we're going to see as we look at our two characters again in uh, the next few verses of Luke 16. So we can go ahead and go there. The, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So Lazarus dies, and your translation may say that he went to be in Abraham's bosom. What does that mean? This, some, some say Abraham's side, others say Abraham's bosom. People are often very confused by what that means. So if you think about Abraham, he is Father Abraham. He's the father of people of the faith, um, people who who have faith in God. And so he is the... In this, at least in this time, he was the representative of every one of those people, all who had faith in God. And so to be by his side essentially just means to be at rest, to be at home uh, with the people of God. It's, it's to be in heaven. If, if any of us who follow Jesus were to die today, we would go to be at Jesus' side. We would be in heaven with him at his side. That's where Lazarus is, and unfortunately that's not the case for the rich man. It says that he is in a place called Hades where he experienced torment. So Lazarus had misery in this life and blessing in eternal life, whereas the rich man had blessing in this life and misery in eternal life. So is this karma? Is this like the movie Trading Places where, I mean, is it, does God just not like rich people? I mean, what's going on here? Well, that's definitely not the case. Because if you look at the scriptures, you see plenty of examples of rich people who also love the Lord, and we will meet them in heaven, people like Abraham, like King David or Solomon, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the man who gave his tomb to have Jesus buried in it. Or if you go to Acts, 
I believe it's chapter 16, where you have this woman named Lydia. You know what she does? She is a dealer of purple clothing. She sells purple clothing to rich people, and she herself is rich, but she's a follower of Jesus. She will be someone we could meet in heaven one day. So it's not, this is not some karma thing, okay? It's not just about flip-flopping because, you know, balance or something like that. No, Lazarus is in heaven because of the grace of Jesus Christ, because Jesus saved him. And the rich man is separated from God because apparently he never saw his need for Jesus. He never repented of his sin. Even in his misery, he is still looking to other people to serve him. He's like, Abraham, send Lazarus. Lazarus, come make me comfortable. He still doesn't see it. He still doesn't understand that he needs Jesus to help him. Lazarus can't do anything for him. Besides, Abraham says there's a great chasm. There's this So what we see here is this finality of eternal separation from God. This is what sin does to us. If we continue and continue in our sin and we never repent and follow Jesus, this is is going to be our eternity. And there is no second chance. So while we're on controversial topics, we've already done money. Let's do this next one. The Bible talks about hell as a real place, as an eternal separation from God without hope of a second chance. The Bible does not teach purgatory. The Bible does not teach some kind of annihilationism, which is the belief that you wouldn't continue on consciously in eternity, but that you would simply just cease to exist. The Bible teaches of a real eternal torment and the church has made plenty of mistakes with this doctrine there's two big ones two huge mistakes we either overdo it and we preach hellfire and brimstone and we scare people and we think that that's going to get people into the kingdom of god and all it is is it's bad news bad news bad news we never talk about the good news or we just back off from it we ignore it we, we pretend like it's not in the bible and in some cases there have been churches who have said no it's not in the bible like, well, yeah, it is, because Jesus doesn't back, back off from it. Jesus uses the word, uh, in the Aramaic, it's Gehenna. He uses that word 11 times. This word Hades, he uses that word four times. He also refers to a place of outer darkness and a place of blazing furnace. One example of that is Matthew thirteen forty two. He says, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In other words, constant sadness and, and, and constant fighting. Just misery. Not annihilationism. So Jesus says this to us. Why? Because he loves us. And he's warning us. And he's saying, repent of your sin because the kingdom of God is at hand. And if we don't repent and follow Jesus, this could be our end. And I wonder, why does, this, why does this not cause my heart to break more for the lost? I mean, if Jesus is saying hell is real, and if we know that there's many in our world who don't know who Jesus is, or don't know Jesus, or don't want to know Jesus, then why am I not more motivated to share my faith with those people? Every chance I get, well, I think, again, 
this is, a, this is another example of where I am living for this life. I mean, I, I can think of plenty of times when I've felt a nudge, go talk to that person. And in my head, I start to doing, the, doing these justifications. Like, well, they don't, I don't know that person. It'll probably make them uncomfortable. It'll make me uncomfortable. It'll make somebody uncomfortable. Let's just, just ignore it. Well, why don't I just step out in faith and, and think of the eternal instead of just thinking about what's making me comfortable in that moment. The reality is this, this life, it goes by so quickly. It's such a vapor, as the Bible calls it. So why not jump at every opportunity to share our faith? We also need, though, this reassurance that Jesus is going to give us in the last part of this parable. And this reassurance is that as we share our faith, as we have eternity in view, it's just our job to share our faith. It isn't our job to change a person's heart. It isn't our job to convince someone. It's, it's just to be faithful. It's just to share the word and let the word do its work. And, and that's what we're going to see in the last part is that the only thing we need is God's word. Let's look at Luke 16 verses 27 through 31. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So knowing that he has no hope for himself, he thinks of his five brothers, this rich man, and he says again, send Lazarus, send him back from the dead to go share the gospel. And Abraham says, no, all, all a person needs for salvation is Moses and the prophets. Well, what does that mean? You might see this uh, throughout the Gospels, especially, Jesus might refer to Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets. Uh, if you think of the, the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up to the mountain and there he meets with Moses and Elijah, who are representative of the law and the prophets. And then Jesus is there, and so we see the entire scripture represented there. Represented there. So it's talking about Moses and the prophets or law and the prophets is the Old Testament. And so the scriptures here, Jesus is saying, the Old Testament alone is enough to convince someone of their need for Jesus Christ. Because the Old Testament is about Jesus. And you might be like, well, I don't ever see his name in the Old Testament. What are you talking about? But think about Genesis 3.15. Jesus is, we're supposed to understand, he's the snake crusher. He's the one that's going to come and defeat Satan. Think about the law and the sacrificial system. How specifically with sacrificing a lamb and shedding its blood to atone for sin, Jesus is the Lamb of God whose blood atones for our sin once and for all. Think about David. God promised him that there would be a king who would come from his family line and would reign forever. That's Jesus. Think about the prophets, Isaiah 53. There's this, this mention of a suffering servant who will be pierced for our transgressions. That is Jesus. And, and so many other examples that we could point to. 
As a side note, if you've not had a chance to check out Adult Sunday School yet, which is happening right now, it's, this is what we've been talking about. We've been talking about how all of Scripture points to Jesus Christ. I would encourage you guys sometime to make plans to come check it out. Um, it is, it's a great way to deepen your faith, to know more of what, what God's Word teaches, what, and what we believe and why we believe it. Um, and yeah, so come check it out. Back to the sermon. Here we go. Jesus is all throughout the Old Testament. It points us to him. It screams at us. Jesus is the point. And then we get the New Testament. I mean, think about it. The people, the audience of this parable would not have had any New Testament. They only had the Old Testament. We have the, the record of Jesus' works, of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and everything that the apostles did. We have all of that. And, and so we need to understand that this is all we need to be convinced of the gospel. And so if you're out sharing your faith with someone, we don't need to be afraid. We don't need to worry that we don't have the right rhetorical skills or that you know, we don't know the clever enough tactics or arguments to convince someone of their need for Jesus Christ. No. Honestly, I think that you just need to open the Bible and just start reading it with somebody or, or even be convinced of, of the truth that Jesus says that the words will be given to you when you have to speak them. Or maybe you're on the other end. Maybe you have doubts about Jesus. Maybe you're on the fence about this whole God thing. And, and what I think the Word is trying to say to you is we don't need some sort of scientific proof that, that God is real. We don't, we don't need some extra prophet, some new guy to come and like share a new revelation from God. We don't need somebody to predict the end of the world and then, oh, wow, he actually got it right. I mean, we don't need another miracle. Maybe we think, if I just saw a miracle, then I'd believe. But the parable, the rich man basically says that. He says, if my brothers would just see a man rise from the dead, then they believe. But Abraham's like, no, they, they have everything they need in the, in the word of God. And look, Jesus raised the other Lazarus from the dead. He actually did that. And a lot of people saw it, and there were some very different reactions to it. Let's look at John 12, verses 9 through 11. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, so this is after Jesus has already raised Lazarus from the dead, um, they came not only on account of him, Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So on the one hand, you've got, like it just says, many of the Jews believing in Jesus because of what they saw. But on the other hand, you've got these chief priests who were like, let's kill Lazarus again. What? Jesus has raised this guy from the dead and you just want to kill him? What is that going to do? Even when Jesus himself died on the cross and then rose from the dead so many of these guys all they were they were consumed by silencing putting in prison or killing anyone who followed Jesus why such drastically different responses to the same thing it's all about how our hearts receive this message 
do we see that we need God to be our helper? Do we see ourselves spiritually the way Lazarus was physically? Laying on the ground, completely helpless, without hope, apart from Jesus Christ. That is the spiritual reality that we, that we are without God. Or do we see ourselves spiritually the way the rich man saw himself physically? He saw himself as independent, as self-sustaining, even maybe self-righteous. Do we see ourselves that way spiritually? Do we know that we need God to be our helper? And, and this is, by the way, this is the point of why Jesus tells this parable. If you look at Luke 16, verses 14 through 15, it gives us the audience for the parable. It says, The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. In other words, living, living a YOLO lifestyle where, where we're just thinking about ourselves and what's going on right now, God is saying, that is detestable in my sight. But that's what people value. So he, he gives us the audience, and then a few verses later we get this parable. And he, you got to see, he loves the Pharisees as much as we rag on the Pharisees and use them as this example of self-righteous people who just just want to like lord it over everyone. Jesus actually loves these guys. And he's trying to warn them, look, you will be like the rich man in the parable if you don't see that you need God to be your helper, if you don't see that you need to come to him in faith. Jesus comes preaching this message of the kingdom of God of Repent of your sins. Turn away from your sin and turn towards me. He preaches a message of justice and mercy, of salvation by grace, not by works. And he was a threat to these guys. Because why? Because they only saw the power and the wealth that their religious system brought them. They were only thinking about right now. And these were guys who apparently they're supposed to believe in the afterlife, in the resurrection, yet they did not live as though that were a reality. But other people, they saw that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He, they saw that He is the way. He is the person, the one person through whom we can, we can have faith and trust in Him and we can get right with God. Maybe that's what Jesus wants all of us to hear right now, to, to know right now. Maybe He wants us to to get our focus off of just what's, what's happening with me, what's happening in my world right in front of me. Maybe he wants, a, wants us to enlarge our focus to something more eternal. I began with a C.S. Lewis quote. I'll finish with one too. He says, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Let's pray.